first time I interviewed you, 2018. Yeah. I had a basketball podcast and you were just this, this figure <laughs> that was both into basketball, but into the same spiritual intellectual things I was. And you were my first real interview. I scheduled an interview with you. Wow. And then I got so nervous that I, I booked two more interviews in between our date so I could practice. <laughs> and then that was the start of what became my podcast journey, which then led me down like a very cool spiral of life. So that's really cool. I remember the way that you reached out and it was just like, I wanted to do a podcast with you because it's almost like you meet people who feel like they're living a timeline that you could have lived. Mm. And like, absolutely. I could have been like, a person who like brought psychology to like basketball players and I just loved what you were doing yeah. you know, and it worked out. Yeah, that was an interesting phase. I, I could have played that out longer and maybe one day we'll circle back. But um, And then Graham, hop in at any point too. If you have something to add, I would love to hear. What is exciting you right now? What is, let's just open it up to what, what feels like. Yeah. Yeah, exciting to your artist right now and what you're mulling on for four hours a day. Yeah, so I actually just yesterday, I finished the rough draft of the first book manuscript that I've ever completed. I've tried to write books. I've tried to write, I think, four books and I have failed each time because what happens each time is there's this part of me that wants to write like an analytic philosopher and anyone who knows anything about analytic philosophy um not fun to read and then there's a part of me that wants to write like a academic and i want to cite things and so if you write as an academic it's really hard to like write powerful prose and so whenever i would try to start on a book it would just grow and grow and grow. And I'd be like, I have to read these six books to write this one chapter. And it would just get to the point where I would lose the like eros or the passion that started the project. And this most recent bout of doing ayahuasca. So I try to do ayahuasca once a year, just, uh, you know, check in on my bullshit, you know, like the, People who have fear about doing psychedelics who talk about, well, if it works, why do you do it so often? It's like, do you brush your teeth and then it works and then you stop brushing your teeth? It's like our capacity to bullshit ourselves is ever present and it can grow like a film on your teeth, you know, and ayahuasca is a way that I check in. My entire life, the way that I've integrated is to write a trip report. But when I went and did this last bout of ayahuasca, it was so big that a trip report would have taken like it would be like 20 hours long so instead what i chose to do is i chose to write a book that came through on one of the nights like because kind of the core insight of my last bout with ayahuasca was we're going to show you over and over again what it feels like to be overwhelmed and Whenever I had questions, kind of the answer I would get is just keep writing. And then on one of the nights, the insight came through, write a book for artists where you just copy the form of Stephen Pressfield and just write your own version of the war of art. So what I've been working on every day for three to four hours since I've been home is my version of, or like my, 
like a tip of the hat to Stephen Pressfield because his books helped save my life. You know, they're part of the canon of books that uh, saved my life. And so what came through in ayahuasca was 64 chapters. No chapter can be longer than two pages <laughs> and write it as an artist, not as an academic or a philosopher. And for the first time in my life, I've completed the task. And it's like 100 pages long. Uh, it's only like 30,000 words, but the rough draft got completed yesterday. And something that was mythopoetically interesting was a part of my practice to like get into my writing space is to light a candle. When I started this project, I had a fresh candle. Yesterday, on the day that I finished, <laughs> the candle burnt down to the wick and was done. Wow. And I was like, that's pretty cool. Wow. And he casually shows up today. How was your morning? I, I finished my book, so that feels pretty good. <laughs> I've known you for years and you've had many book ideas come and go and you've and you finished a fucking book draft. So well, it's exciting. The reason I'm not, you know, like I'm done is because I I completed the rough draft. Yeah. And, and there's so some, now it's there's lots something of to the evenness of pushing through a goal without like getting too high or too low. It's like you've been right. entrenched in the process. So it's almost like, yeah, it's almost a non-attachment to an outcome at this point, I would imagine. 100%. But <laughs> so, but to that point, like um, Stephen Pressfield and Rick Rubin have been some of the most important kind of like inner mentors to help me work through my art. And yeah. what both of them talk about is um, Stephen Pressfield says that the best piece of advice he ever got from a writer was the day you complete a book, you start the next one mm. that day. Yeah. And the piece of advice from Rick Rubin is have the orientation that the artistic process is a thing that you do every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that you want to get, just get what you're working on out so you can start the next thing and you teach yourself that there's always a next thing like i think for a lot of artists who know that they haven't done the first thing it's because we think about like like if we're meant to record an album or we're meant to make a movie or we're meant to write a book we think that like the first one has to be the one yeah and it's like it's our resume it's our legacy and it's like that's how you suffocate a flame. You know, you just put way too much on top of it and it just goes out. Yeah, I like the quote, like the seeds of your next great work is lays in, I'm butchering it, but lays in the imperfections of your current work. So it's 100%. like that, it's like that quantity quality thing that I know you've talked about too. Yeah. It don't, don't. And then I re, re, I reread The Artist's Way the other day and it was like the prayer that stuck out the most to me in that book was like, great creator, I'll focus on quantity, you focus on quality. So just, Push it out, push it out, push 100%. it out. One hundred percent. There's a great study that was done. I mean, it was kind of like an informal test, but there was a art professor of photography who gave his class the option to either they had to take a photo every day and they could submit whatever their top photo was at the end of the year and that would be graded. Or the other group could, they only had to turn in one photo, but it would be the one that would be graded for the whole semester. Something like 90% of the highest grade photos from that class came from the group that had to take a photo every day. Yeah. 
And there's something deeply revealing about what creates great art. And it's like, you need to make it small enough where you can do the part that's the scariest, which is for it to be received by other people. <laughs> and you have to train that muscle. And so the people who wait, that put all this pressure on the one thing, you know, it's like, everyone is a flower. And to not create your art is for the bud to not ever open. You know, and it's like, bust that thing open, mm -hmm. get it out there. There's a lot of threads we've opened. And I, like, <laughs> we could talk about the contents of the book, but I almost want to move backwards and talk about how that's felt for you and what's it looked like, that process of showing up to your art for the last, like, it sounds like intensely the last couple months. Yeah. Yeah, because that's something I've been sitting with a lot is process over product. Right. And it's, a, it's like what you're talking about. It's a quantity over quality. It's like, if I, what is the thing that if I did it every single day would almost make everything else irrelevant? And yeah. am, am I doing it? And it sounds like you've been living in that. Yeah. So what is, what has been, what has that been like? Yeah. What's interesting is for the last couple of months, I've been so in it that I haven't had balance in the rest of my life. Yeah. Like, it can consume you. Yeah. But so I want to back up even more. And it's, um, I've been cultivating like the first couple of hours of my day to be a space where I like cultivate my dharma. And I've been doing this for like 13 years now. And it's the reason that I've been able to go from I barely made it into college because I was addicted to opiates and I didn't, I, I was fucked up, but I somehow stumbled into college. Um, because my mom went to war, I got the GI Bill from her. So I was able to go to four years at a university and I got a bachelor's degree in cognitive psychology. And because none of my, no one in my family had gone to college, no one in my family had graduated from college. So I just assumed if I got my degree, I, I could just go work in that field. Um, that was not the case. I ended up wrapping burritos at Chipotle for eight fifty an hour, which was an, which was a dollar above minimum wage, and I thought I was just fucking balling. Balling, dude. Um, it was around that time where I started to realize, like, the path that I'm on is leading to a life that I do not want. And if I'm going to have the life that I want, I'm going to have to create it. And it was around that time. I'd been at Chipotle for maybe six months. Um, my first major relationship was ending. My partner was moving out. We had lived together for over a year. And I got a back spasm that was so bad that I couldn't walk for five days. And so... I'm laying on the ground as my partner is packing up to leave. Like I had to piss in a cup on the floor because I didn't have insurance. I couldn't make it to the doctor. I didn't know what was wrong. And it was on like day two of not being able to walk. I was listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast and he mentioned a book called The Artist's Way. And something in me was just like, buy it. And I'd never bought a book about art ever. Like I read philosophy and I studied psychology and I never got into art. Because of the magic of Amazon, that book showed up two days later. So it was day four of not being able to walk. And I started to read that book and 
it felt like I was having like life breathed into me. That book is, I think it's one of the most special like channeled pieces of work for artists that has been written in English. Same. And the essence of that book is that it, it preaches two daily or it preaches one daily practice and one weekly practice. And the daily practice is called the daily pages. And the weekly practice is called the artist date. And the essence of the daily pages is you practice the capacity to tell yourself the truth. And what I realized within, like something seized me and I started journaling three pages by hand every day, like it was going to save my life. And I don't know where that was coming from because it did end up saving my life. And I'll go more into that story later, but that within a couple of weeks, I realized because I had never had a intentional space in my life to cultivate being honest with myself, my entire life was mediated through trying to get people to like me. Like I didn't even understand what it felt like to try to be honest. And so I realized that I had been dishonest with my partner for over a year and a half, that I'd actually fallen out of love with her a year and a half ago. We had been together for a year and a half up until that point and that she could feel it, but I couldn't claim it. And just the pain that I caused her was a function of my cowardice-ness and not being able to be honest. The next thing I realized is that I didn't like any of my friends and it wasn't my friend's fault. I had no one that I felt seen by because I didn't have the capacity or the strength to be who I was. And that most of my friends were just people who had the same coping patterns that I had. So like I had my friends that I'd play video games with until two o'clock you know, 2 a.m. in the morning, I had the friends that I would drink with. I had the friends that I would gossip about other friends with. And then I had the like relationships where we would just agree to basically be drama for each other so we don't have to do the thing that we're here to do. The third thing that I realized was that um, I was afraid and I hated my body. And that that was a huge kind of breakthrough for starting to work with my body to start to actually overcome by chronic back pain. For a lot of people who might not know, there's a really interesting body of research that believes that most of our chronic pain is the result of repressed emotion. And that like what we, what when, when doctors look at x-rays of spines and they see like bulging discs or hernias or whatever, um, it might not be what we think it is. And what I found is through actually writing letters to my body and apologizing that I was able to start to walk, you know, and it's been a long road with my chronic back pain, but it's, it's a way healthier relationship. But the main thing that that book provided for me was it helped me start to create a sacred space in this mundane world where I practice being honest with myself and then I practice making art. And in the three months that I worked with that book, cause it took me three months to fill up my first journal cause it was a big journal. Over the course of those three months, that's when I discovered Carl Jung. Through that, I discovered my dream life. 
And I actually unlocked a skill that is now one of my most valuable skills, which is that I'm able to now think in symbol and metaphor. And I actually, I literally didn't have that capacity before I started this practice every day. Like I could only think in like words and think in like logical steps. And now, like whenever I am talking to someone, like metaphors and images will pop up in my mind that are like smarter than me, that I'll start to use the metaphors and the conversations to talk about things that we can't grok with just language. And so that practice of doing that every morning, it helped me survive working at a insurance company. After I left Chipotle, I started working in a call center where I would just take cold calls from old people who had accidentally put their information in online and I would try to sell them insurance. Soul crushing. This daily artistic practice helped me survive a year and a half of being unemployed where I basically ate vegetables and eggs six days a week. And on my cheat day, on my splurge day, I would get Chipotle. And this daily practice is also what helped me not fucking burn out once I got my dream job at Onnit because I was working like 12 hours a day every day because this was my moment. Like I came from lower middle class. I got the opportunity to make like 28,000 a year. And I thought that like, I was like, I'm fucking rich. This is my opportunity. Go for it. And I personally think, and this is a much larger point, but that we're living in a time where most things that have generated meaning for people have been killed. And we're living through a invisible genocide where something like 28 million people a year in the U.S. die from what are called diseases of civilization which are basically things that kill people that didn't kill people before we got the modern culture that we live in now. There's also over 300 million people who are not only depressed, but who are so depressed that they can't work. It's the leading cause of disability in the world now, depression is. And depression does not have a biological cause. I'm going to say that again for people who might not know. You can go like the, the cat is out of the bag when it comes to the chemical imbalance hypothesis. We were lied to. It does not have a biological cause. And the other thing that people don't know is that depression has the same symptoms as grief. Depression has the same set of symptoms as someone who just experienced a loved one who had died. And I think one of the things that we can't see unless we train ourselves to see is that most of us are grieving the death of a story that can provide meaning in this world, you know, that is full of boxes with air conditioning where you can just order whatever you want on Amazon and how you're told you should be comfortable. You don't have to believe in anything. Don't have any strong convictions. And by the way, you're sick. We'll tell you every reason why you're sick through our advertisements that you watch every seven minutes if you watch TV. On average, there's advertisements every seven minutes. And it's like, 
it takes 15 minutes for you to get into a flow state. So you're just perpetually distracted by advertisements telling you that there's shit wrong with you, but it's not your fault. And you're just born that way. And we've got the solution for you if you buy our product or if you buy our pill. And I think it's killed a lot of people's souls and it's dramatic, but I really think for better or for worse, we live in a time now where we have to create our own religion through us. You know, like Carl Jung has this quote, you know, and I think, you know, he's a legendary psychiatrist and psychologist. He has a quote from his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that says, every patient that he has ever seen heal. The thing that was wrong with them at their core was that they had lost a religious view of life. Not any particular religion, but a religious view. And that the thing that heals them is when they find or rediscover a religious view of life. For better or for worse, none of the classic religions are going to feed that hole in most people's hearts because most people have gotten to this type of level of development where we can look at the classic religions and be like, those people abused their power and abused millions of people in response to those powers. Like just look at the inquisitions, the crusades, jihads, didn't work out. We have to create our own religious view. And I think the only solution that fits every human heart is to get them to start to be an artist. Like, I truly believe that anyone who says that they're not an artist, that's just a blocked artist. Yeah. <laughs> I miss podcasting with you <laughs> because I can be like, hey, man, how, how's writing your book been? <laughs> this is what happens when I, you know, here we, here we are spending a lot of time thinking alone in a room. So I have a lot of ideas. I can tell. And it's beautiful. And I'm popping out of my head. We got to pop you. Uh I think one of the things that drew me to you first that came up as you're just saying all that was you can really feel into someone like and how deeply you connect to them by how much they've you've been impacted by the same books mm. and I feel like bar none the biggest impact you made on me in 2018 was you told me to read The Artist's Way such a similar happening with me and how that book impacted me and I truly think it was like a channeled work yeah and even the same, like how it got me out of a certain relationship and how it put me down the podcasting path deeper and just that constant relationship with life itself transformed my life. And then like you bring up the man's search for meaning, you bring, and then deep work and all these books that we have in common. It's just interesting. And um, yeah, man, like the artist way feels like, I feel like I'm a disciple of that book. You're a disciple of that book. And it feels like, that's a good way to put it. It feels like the God path to me is the creative path, the God path. They feel like the same thing. Yeah, there's a thing where it feels like there's a type of person. I'm going to see how I can weave this. So um, one of the most famous studies in psychology is called the uh, learned helplessness studies. And basically what they found is that you can put dogs inside of a contraption where um, half of the floor can be electrified and the other half isn't. 
And the dogs, when the part that is electrified gets electrified, they'll yip and then they'll jump to the part that's not. If you remove the part that's not and you have the whole thing electrified, they can't run away. And they'll run this experiment over and over and they find that like one third of the dogs will never give up trying to get to a part that's not. Um, One third of the dogs will um, attempt to do it again if they're with a dog that hasn't given up. But then there's one third of dogs that they like break. And they'll never believe again that that it's possible, even if they're put into a new cage where it is possible. And the conclusion of that was something that's called learned helplessness. And that's like where people, it's where mammals can learn to basically give up hope. I think there's a certain type of person that grows up in this culture and it tends to be people who were athletes at some point where like they've, they've cultivated the capacity that there's always a way. And we live in a culture where so much meaning has been killed that the people who won't give up are the ones that the moment they read a book like The Artist's Way, they can feel there's a there there. Mm. There's, I can feel it in my core Mm. that there's like, whatever is the nutrient that comes from the religious view, like Carl Jung talked about, whatever that is, like that's the reason why the monotheistic religions worked to the degree that they did, but it's no explicit set of rules. It's kind of this like nutrient community at homeness that it allows the people to feel who are a part of it. That's available in the artistic process. And I think for the people who haven't given up, the moment they start to sniff it, they're like, that's the way. And it's why my favorite people to be around are artists who have not given up. And because, again, I think every, I don't think, everyone is an artist. Yeah. If you speak. Or, or artist is a, a synonym for human. 100%. Yeah. Right. And, and so to deny the artistic capacity is to deny your humanness. And it like, it, it cuts us off from our soul. And so like a part of what is really inspiring me right now is like, we live in revolutionary times. And I think the most revolutionary act is to turn on as many people to their artisticness as can happen. Because when people are connected to their artistic process, there's a few things that happen. One, you can feel that they're on fire. And to feel someone on fire is permission that that's possible because most people around us, the fire is out. The other thing that it does is it, it brings your locus of gravity into your soul as opposed to the external world. Mm. Like an artist who is connected to their artistic process, they're hard to turn into a zombie. And zombies are, is a mythological metaphor for people who have completely subscribed to an ism. Like if you've ever met a person where you start to talk about like politics and you can guess their response to anything you ask them, 
and they will say exactly what you know is a part of that ism, you're in the presence of a zombie. The tragedy is that most people are caught up in like some of the like least artistically attractive isms that have ever been produced by culture. You know, it's like one ism is like make money at all costs, you know, and everyone knows like the daily grind, bro. You know, it's like, that's an ism. Then there's this other ism that I at least see in our space where it's like, um, I can't wait to get my farm to leave this fucked up culture and just raise my family away from the whole thing. I think that's also not a fruitful ism, but in the humans can't function without a religious view. And most of us today, we think that we're like rational enough not to believe in any gods, but consumerism is a God. Capitalism is a God. Industrialism, communism, rationalism. Those are all gods. Yeah. They're all gods who don't think they're gods. You know? I want to talk about the how alive you feel when you're connected to it because the intention of the day of you and me getting together, Graham here coming, we have other homies coming together. We all have this like, um, I was listening to Graham's song on the way and he's like, you have this melody in your, uh, what is the line? <laughs> you have, I have a melody in my, like there's a melody. You can almost softly hear it. Either you can barely hear it and then you tune into it more and you tune into it more and it starts to get louder and then you start to play with it and then that melody gets louder and you're like, holy shit, now my whole life has like music. Yes. And yes. I feel like all of us yeah. are coming together today because we're like, I've been kind of like playing the piano alone and then I'll draw, like at least, you know, I, you were writing a book, but um, it's, yeah, it's like you play it and it gets, it, it comes back, but then it gets fainter and life takes you away from it. 100%. And life, you know, you have to be practical and you got to fucking, I got my job and I got to do my shit. And like, we're artists for work, a lot of us, but that art is almost a different form of art. So it's just like this really, it's it's simple, like make art, but it's also really complex. Yeah. But when you get to play with that melody, it becomes so fucking beautiful. Yeah. I guess, yeah, what comes up for you when I say that? Like, because <laughs> I think that's, that's the intention of the day. Is, um, 100%. Yeah. Coming into deeper resonance with that because, and the last thing I'll say is just even just two days ago, like um, I picked up my camera and and played for fun and I, I shot video of me and my dog. And like, it was interesting because I woke up and before it was almost like my logical mind could come on, on online for the day. It was like, I just picked up my camera, went outside and started playing like a kid with my camera and my dog. And that rest of the day was full of so much like grace and magic. It was yes. almost like I came yeah. into resonance with like the wind. <laughs> 100%. And as if the wind then took me throughout the day and all these synchronicities happen, all these yep. miracles happen. I wow. met people I never thought I would meet. And I just, the, the day ended and I was like, what the fuck happened today? And yeah. I traced it back to, Max, you woke up and you played with your camera and did something childish and silly, quote unquote. But it just put you into resonance with like all of life. This is, Yeah. I'm going to try. So let's talk about that. 100%. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep this under half an hour. Yeah, okay. yeah. Let me respond and then I'll, you know, yeah, yeah. see how excited you got. <laughs> yeah. So, one of the most interesting things that I've discovered in life is that every single person that I've ever spoken to about this idea that you know that whisper in you somewhere that is like, calling you to do things that you can feel are like for you 
but you're afraid to do, or you think it's impractical or whatever. Everyone I've ever spoken to acknowledges the phenomenon of that whisper. And if you take a moment, like one of the reasons why I love Jungian psychology so much is that it reveals something that's deeply unnerving and also incredibly enlivening, which is that what you think you are is a little piece of what's going on in you. And if you think of the totality of your psyche, most people think the totality of their psyche is their ego. But your psyche is like a mansion. And the ego only gets to hang out on the front porch. And the ego thinks the entire house is the front porch. But there's hundreds of rooms in that mansion. And every room, there's a, a, a person or a demon or a god or a dream in each of those rooms. And one of those rooms, there's this thing that whispers to you. And like, I've done some research for this book. Every major culture that you can think of has a word for this whisper. The Greeks called it the daemon. The Romans called it the genius. And it also kind of comes from the Arabic word jinn. Um, Which means what? It's like animating spirit. Hmm. It's like a guardian spirit. Genius really resonates with me. Exactly. Yeah that there's this like guardian spirit that's in us that is trying to call us to what are, what we're meant to be. And Carl Jung used the metaphor of the acorn and the oak tree that somewhere in the acorn is the inner fully manifested image of the oak tree. But the function of the oak tree is to shatter the acorn. The oak tree is going to kill the acorn. Just like the image of the butterfly is going to is going to literally disintegrate the caterpillar. What we're meant to be, each of us, we have an inner soul image. That thing's meant to kill us over and over and over again. Hmm. And our culture has gotten so confused where we misinterpret the birth pangs of our potential as psychosis, as neurosis, as illness, and that we try to do things and consume things that are trying to glue the acorn back together. You're supposed to be shattered by this thing. And what I have found is that when we listen to the whisper, it's, it's like, the quality of the whisper is a song and it's trying to get us to dance in rhythm with this song. All of the woes of your life are the result of being out of tune with this song and grace and synchronicities are evidence of when you are in tune with this song. This song is going to terrify you. Because it's like the nature of the song is to get you to do things that will kill your current perspective of who you think you are. And from the perspective of the person that has to listen to the whisper, it's terrifying. Like one of the most common types of dreams that people have is that they're being chased, they're being hunted, or some monster or some murderer is trying to kill them. That is 
the thing that's trying to kill you is not, you know, an ex-partner who's trying to fuck up your life. It's not evidence that you had a past life where you were murdered. It is your daemon. It is that inner whisper seeking you out. Because from the perspective of the dreamer, which is the ego, it feels like a murderer or a monster. And what I have found personally is the two things that put me into grace with that whisper. One is have a religious disposition towards trying to tell the truth. Like the mantra that I repeat to myself is, Whenever I speak and act the truth to the best I can, the result is the best possible thing that can happen. Mm. So like if you're afraid to speak a truth to your partner because you think it might ruin the relationship. Yeah. It's like a sell your, like I love the roomy sell your cleverness, purchase bewilderment. That's it's, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, I'll be so clever by, for me, I'm like, I'll be so clever to tell this like off truth. But then yeah. when I tell the truth, I'm bewildered by like the capital plan, you know? And the capacity for other people to grow in response to you actually telling the truth. Yeah. Number two is whenever I feel the whisper ask me to do something, to the degree it scares me is the, is the same degree to which I have to do it. And that, like, when I got that insight, it came as a result of me accidentally eating 180 milligrams of THC a few days before my birthday when I was unemployed and I was living with my mom. And I had the hardest experience of my life still to date. You know, since doing that, I've done ayahuasca almost like 26 times. I've done Vilca, I've done DMT, I've done 5-MeO, I've done a bunch of mushrooms, nothing was as terrifying. Tried to guard me on the basketball court. True. (laughs) That was close to as scary as as this. And when I survived it, I woke up the next morning and the first thing that popped into my head is nothing is going to be as terrifying as what I just went through. Mm. So I'm going to start doing things that scare me. Mm. Within a week of that promise, I um, actually went on a date for the first time since I ended my relationship with my first primary partner because I was afraid of women. And I would get dates and then I would ghost. And I just accumulated a bunch of women that I had done wrong through ghosting them because I was afraid to actually meet. So I had a great experience on a first date. The next day, I applied to a job that I didn't think I deserved to apply to. Two days after that, I got a call from that job. And the person who called me is now my fiance. It was the first time I ever spoke to her. Wow. And then two days after that, I heard I got the job. I moved out of my mom's house. I moved to Austin. I started staying on a friend's couch and I started working it on it. Within a week, of doing things that I was afraid to do. I was in a new city at my dream job. And without realizing it, I had started hanging out with my future fiance. Hmm. And so to get back to the core of your question, like when I'm around my friends and I can see that they're allowing fear of some type to keep them from stepping more into that whisper. It is all I'm interested in. 
because one, like I seem to have the capacity to really be able to feel into what people's soul image is. And like, I also think it's the cure to most of our mental health problems is to get people to create and to connect to this part. Jung had a quote and he was like, if I can get the neurotic to start to make art, I know that they're going to heal themselves. Mm. This is a trippy conversation because in 2018, I feel like we're revisiting the core teachings of Eric Godsey and like the core pillars. And it's almost like f- this was five years ago we talked. The, one of the, big, the biggest things we talked about were the morning pages, artist way. And then back then you called it the, uh, the faith experiment. You were like two weeks. Mm. Do what scares you for two weeks and see what happens. And he told me these exact stories. And it's, it's trippy because it's, it's, it's on the front of your awareness. Like I can tell you're excited about yeah. it. And this is in the wake of writing, finishing your first book draft. And it's the teachings that you told me five yeah. years ago. So it's like, we've been able to stress test these and, and we've gone on multiple tangents, but we look like I'm in the same boat. I look back um, and the things we talked about five years ago are still like of the most important things. And now I feel like I have a little more context for myself of what these things mean. They still ring so true, but like there's nuance too. Like, um, the listening to the voice, like it almost felt like there was always like this one looming, you know, you know, this is just how I think about it now, but this like one looming decision that made all everything else irrelevant. And now it feels more like a, like you said, like a resonance where like in morning pages is for me, the best way to get in conversation with what this voice is inviting me into, but it could be like small acts too. Like, of course there's these big acts that scare the fuck out of me that would seismically shift my life. And every time I do step into that like courageous act of like having a hard fucking conversation with the person that scares me or um, putting out this, like those things, now I'm starting to see that courage is like this bridge into new life like you're talking about. So anytime I feel the need to be courageous, I'm like, okay, like it's scary, but it's literally bridging me into a brand new life. Um, And so I, I have compassion, you know, when I'm scared because like you're saying, like, the butterfly, like I can feel myself dying, like literally. And so full of compassion for that Max that's dying. And like, I, I hear you, buddy. But then for me too, like um, this also plays out in the, the micro, like um, like the decision last night for me to go to bed <laughs> instead of <laughs> being high and doing stupid <laughs> shit. <laughs> like, I was like, get your ass in bed, dude. Like, you're going to hang out with your boys tomorrow. It'd be really nice if you got like a proper eight hours. And I, I stayed up for two hours and I didn't go to bed. But the the times I do, it's like, that's a form for me of being, right. co- being courageous. Like it, it's actually, it was f- for whatever weird reason, it's like scary to do things differently. And it's scary to go to bed a couple hours early. It's scary for me to when in the mornings my nervous system wants to fucking just start the day, like it's it. I tell myself it takes courage to slow down and to meditate when 100%. the egoic mind is doesn't feel safe enough to stop. So it's like it's it's the big things listening to the whisper, and then yeah. for me it's also like all the the small moments of like yeah, just these micro adjustments that put me into a different resonance with everything. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is so kind of the core practice at the foundation of all of these ideas is a daily Dharma practice. That's what I call it for myself. And it's like, I've been cultivating like 
the rituals and the intentions and the space and the time of day that like I create a portal for me to go into like doing the hard work to listen to that voice. This is akin to, you know, if you actually want to try to make the meditative state of mind a trait, you have to sit every day and like, not for like five minutes, not for like 20 minutes, but for like an hour. And the idea in Buddhism is that you do that to train all of the little micro movements over and over again with the intention that it is possible to make that state of mind that you're training a trait, which is just a thing that you do effortlessly all day. And this is how I see the Dharma practice is it's, it's my time to train with the intention that for the rest of the day, I'm like 5% more likely to hear the micro whisper in the moment, you know, cause the micro whisper in the moment will come up every time you're talking to your partner. It'll come up every time you look at your phone. If you get a text message or an email, it'll come up. And it's, it's like Harry Potter playing Quidditch. There's the game of trying to get the balls through the hoops and not get hit by the defenders. That's the game on the, like, that's the mundane game. The game above that game is if you find that golden alchemical orb with wings on it, that's called a snitch, but is the the exact alchemical symbol for the crowning achievement of the alchemical process, which is to create gold from lead, like J.K. Rowling used the exact same symbol. You try to catch that. And the way that thing moves is that it, it flints around and it will sometimes sparkle gold. That's what the whisper is like in every moment. In every moment, there's this like flitting golden shard of like, what is the most tuned behavior to do right now to Mm. open up like the window for grace to come into this moment? Mm. And the story that the two of you have heard me tell over and over again, that is the mythological representation of what happens when you live a life that listens to the whisper is the rainmaker story. And so I'm going to tell it quick, but I'm sure most people who are listening have probably heard me talk about it, but it's worth repeating because it's like a song. So this story was Carl Jung's favorite story that he is uh, reported of having repeated often at the beginning of his talks in the second part of his life. And the story is that he had a friend who was an anthropologist who was traveling through China And this friend arrived at a village that was going through a drought. The Westerner goes up to the elders of the village and asks them if he can help. Like, should we dig deeper wells? Should we go to some neighboring village and ask for water to come? What do you guys plan to do? And the elders look at him kind of amused and is like, we've called for the rainmaker. And the Westerner is confused and perplexed and he waits around for a few hours and this old man comes into the village. The Westerner sees the elders go over to this man and like escort him to a hut at the edge of the village. This man goes into the hut and no one else goes in and the man doesn't come out for three days. And at the end of the third day, it starts to rain. It rains all day, all night. So the following morning, the Westerner is waiting right outside the door of this hut and eventually the rainmaker emerges. 
And the Westerner asks him, how did you make it rain? And the rainmaker said, I came from a land that was in order. And because the land was in order, when it needs to rain, it rains. When I came here, the land was so out of order that it infected me and it brought me out of order. And so I brought myself to this hut to bring myself into order. And once I came into order, the land came into order. And once the land came into order, it rained. The one asterisk that I would add to that story is, I think what would be more mythopoetically true is that the rainmaker didn't go out into the hut alone and sit there. The rainmaker started a fire in the middle of the village and started to dance. And he danced in a way where people would just watch him at first, but then a kid would join. And once one kid joined, all the kids joined. And once all the kids were laughing and singing and dancing, some of the less strict adults started to come. And eventually, once everyone came in and started to dance, it rained. Hmm. That would be a little bit more mythopoetically true, but Jung was probably not much of a dancer, even though I love him. I think there is no one in our culture that if you could have an honest conversation with, that they would not admit that they can feel that there is something profoundly wrong with the way that we live our lives. Everybody, I think, has that feeling somewhere in them. And there's something in us that knows what it feels like to be in grace. And when we see it, it invites some people forward and it pisses some people off because to the degree that we've listened to the demons in our own mind that keep us from being in our grace, when we see someone else in their grace, when we see someone else fucking on fire. Alive, yeah. And we've lived numb for years the first reaction that we're going to have to those people is to project our denied exiled parts onto them. And the core reason why this fires me up and why I'm excited to hang out with you guys is that from a very dramatic point of view, I see that we are literally living in a invisible genocide. And the genocide has been just the killing of almost all gods that give people meaning. And I want to feel like I'm shoulder to shoulder with artists who are trying to revivify the gods that have been killed. And I think each of us, when we get deep into our artistic process, without us realizing it, we're finding which gods are our gods to regenerate. Like one of the things to feel into is, you know, everyone has a astrological sign that they feel like is theirs. I think each of us have a, a God that wants to come through us. Like some people, what, will, what they will bring through will be Hermes. Some people will bring through like um, Morpheus or Orpheus. Like one is a musician, one's a, the God of dreams, one's the God of language. And it's like, in my lifetime, I want to be surrounded by artists who are actively cultivating their mastery at their craft and offering their craft to the culture to try to help and heal the culture. Yeah. I want to be a part of the modern renaissance. Amen to that, brother. Same. And it, it's cool when people like, I'm grateful to be friends with you guys because in each each of us is cultivating our own garden and our own sense of mastery. And we're all 
bowing, you know, as best as we can to that, to that Dharma. And then you're able to put your heads together and create like a thing that wouldn't have otherwise been able to exist had you not each individually been bowing. And that's when it gets really powerful. It's like, I, I can make change in my, my ecosystem of people I have influence in and I can, I can reawaken that sense of aliveness in myself by playing with my fucking camera and going out and having a great day and like impact the people. And that can ripple to like a week and a month and a year. But then like I get to collaborate with you. I get to collaborate with Graham, like the people we get to work with and something new and just like so much bigger is able to take place from that place. And I think that that's what excites me about a day like today is when, yeah, the artists can come together and like that's, that feels like seismic change. In, in my perspective. Metaphor that comes to mind is um, I think improv and jazz are probably the two, at least that I'm aware of, like holiest forms of art. <laughs> we warmed up with some improv today, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because both improv and jazz. So my personal God, capital G God, what I think the whole thing is, is it's the energy that says yes and. And so what that means is that God capital G, has no personality, has no rules. Everything is yes and. And so you, like a lot of artists who don't realize they're artists, they're telling God the story of the mass conspiracy that leaves no hope and that we're all fucked. And God is improving with you and just going, yes and. Yeah. And will feed you the information and the epiphanies and the dreams that mm. feed that artistic magnum opus that you don't realize that you're creating by watching 10 hours of conspiracy videos a week to use it to justify, oh, it's fucked. So I'm not actually going to do the thing that the little boy in me wanted to do, which was to make music or whatever. But that the, like, one of the most magical aspects of physics is what's called coherence. And coherence creates this thing called emergence. And so when atoms find coherence with each other, they produce a new thing that the atoms weren't, which is like a molecule. When molecules find coherence together, they're able to create tissue. When tissues find coherence together, they're able to create organs. When organs find coherence, it creates yeah. bodies. And when bodies find coherence, it creates consciousness. When a group of conscious people find coherence with each other, that's when we get the opportunity to start to see what humanity could actually be. I yeah. think humanity is wow. a word that we've used that we've never actually seen. Humanity is currently the placeholder word that we have for what would happen if every human on the planet found coherence with each other. Yeah. Like what the fuck would emerge? Which from first that? starts with co coherence with self. You right. Know, like what what yeah, that may I just got a lightning bolt of energy because it's like it invites you into like the humbling question of what kind of cell am I? Like rather exactly. than trying to be the whole body. Exactly. Like what exactly. what is my cell? Like and how can I just like so pour into that and like a lot changed in my life when I, when I feel like I went through my process of narrowing my focus and like almost humbling myself to one thing and bowing to it. 100%. And so then you're able to play your part in the fucking body. Exactly. <laughs> there's a couple of things coming up. So one of the stories that modernism has given us that has wounded us is the story that 
you can be whatever you want. What's implied there is you can be anything. So anything that feels like it constricts us, it feels like it's somehow like, no. The root word in Greek to decide means to cut away. Mm, And that like, if you imagine humanity as an organism is a caterpillar and every human that exists on this planet are cells inside of that caterpillar. The function of the caterpillar is to eat everything. And that's where we're at. Like if you look at our culture, kind of one of the animating spirits is is it feels like we're eating the earth, like we're just fucking devouring it. What's interesting is the intelligence of the caterpillar knows that once it eats a sufficient amount, a process starts. And the process starts where they start to weave a cocoon. And what most people don't know is that a caterpillar doesn't go into a cocoon and then kind of like shrink and then grow wings. When the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, it is completely alchemically transformed into something that researchers call imaginal cells. Imaginal cells are the closest thing that biology can get to magic, where they're like super stem cells, where these imaginal cells can become any type of thing, any type of cell. And then it starts to reorganize into an entirely different creature. You know, it turns into a butterfly. Hmm. What most people also don't know, and I fact check this, because when I tell these stories, sometimes I get people asking, is that actually true? And I fact checked it, and this is 100% true, that the resistance of the cocoon against the wings is evolutionarily precisely created to be the just right stimulus that allows the wings to grow the capacity to fly. And that if you were to cut the cocoon open the day before the butterfly broke out on its own, it would die because it wouldn't be able to fly. There's an inherent resistance to our becoming that we've pathologized and we give it a bunch of labels and the religious call it evil, but I think it's the inherent structure of becoming what we could be. Mm. And to your point, I, the only way that the humans on this planet are going to get to the point where we have the opportunity to realize what humanity could be is we're going to have to create a new collective myth. Whatever this new collective myth is, it has to incorporate science. It, it won't work if it doesn't. Hmm. What I see is no one person is going to be able to provide this myth. I see the myth that wants to emerge is like the face of God and it's a mosaic, like window pane in a cathedral and it has 7 billion shards in it. And each of us have a specific, radically unique shard of glass to offer the new face of God that's trying to emerge, that would be the face of what it would mean to actually be a humanity. Yeah. And that this is a whole tangent, but um, within the last year, I have found really good research that makes it clear that you can't look at the research on reincarnation and not at least be like, there's something here. <laughs> yeah. And there's a part of me that believes that like each of our souls have a unique facet of God 
to offer to this new face of God that's trying to emerge. And we will keep coming back until we do it. And if anyone here who is like me that was skeptical about reincarnation, check out the book, Life Before Life. I forget who it's by, but it is just hundreds of pieces of evidence for something going on that looks a lot like reincarnation. When I was I was atheist, I was raised atheist basically, materialist, and my parents just happened to have this book called Many Lives, Many Masters and Brian Weiss, who I think is uh you've read and it's just like, <laughs> fucking like it was just like this this western psychologist writing about reincarnation with his patients and it was just like it was the first thing that opened me up to I was like a 17-year-old boy who never read and just happened to read that book. It's uh yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah. I want to like uh let's land the ship. Um I feel like I could ask you about um essentially like the rainmaker process of putting ourselves into coherence, kind of grounding that idea into something more tangible as we land the ship. Like um yeah, like the ideas that were coming up for me while while you were talking were yeah, like how do we play our part as that cell? How do we listen to the voice? And something that just keeps coming up for me to want to speak into this space is like how how simple and small it can be. And I think it goes back to the artist's way book. You know, like I've had some success like getting really masculine with this process of uh, like what is the thing I'm scared of and then tackle it and, and like fucking go do it. And there's like a very straight line approach to this. But that's also been tough because we're so conditioned with fear and I live with so much fear in my tissues and it's just so normal. And like, so that straight line, like face your fear approach of like coming into resonance with life and, you know, stepping into your dharma, it hasn't been as effective for me at times because I might take like three steps forward, but it might, you know, like Jagger says, trauma is too much too fast. So sometimes I would plunge myself into these situations that I couldn't almost embody. Yeah. And then I'd almost regress even further. And then that would create this self-perpetuating like shame cycle of like, see, I can't do it. See, I'm not, I can't do it. Like, fuck. And, and so when I revisit the artist's way, the thing I love about Julia Cameron is her approach to making this a gentle process. And, you know, you can mythopoetically make it beautiful. Like this is your dharma. This is your calling. Or it could be, this is like a little child in you that really still like there's a, there's an unencumbered part of you that is just wants to be free and explore and express. And like that part of you when nurtured lovingly, slowly, intuitively, we'll start like, like you said, I started doing the artist way three months later, my life was just completely different. And I think that's like what I wanted to speak into the space in terms of how to bridge that, like how to make it tangible, how to like start that rainmaker process, how to bring myself into coherence with like the advice I'd give myself is let it be gentle. Let it be a conversation with your little boy that is an inherent artist that wants to build and play and hang with his friends and create shit. Um, and let him lead you. And, and then one thing that's huge for me is let it not make sense at first. Like mm. let it, um, let it be nonlinear because that part of you is connected to so much more than you could imagine that like that part of you that thinks you need to like tackle the head of the snake first is it actually might not be the most elegant way to go about this. So, you know, some graceful thing told me to pick up my camera and play with my dog. And that was the most graceful way to get me into resonance that day that led to all these other things. And, um, 
Yeah, that's just something I wanted to speak out because I feel like five years later, integrating this practice we've been talking about in this process, it's something like I, it's so big for me, and it's something that I've let my like overly masculine, overly goal oriented athlete self that like wants to always take that linear like mamba mentality approach to something it, it's sometimes not that effective for me to do it that way so yeah the thing that comes or that arises for me is that your artistic part is a lot like you're learning how to raise a child and the julia cameron vibe is like the artistic mom and then the Stephen Pressfield and kind of more where I lean is like the artistic <laughs> exactly. dad. Yeah. And that, you know, I haven't raised a child, so I might sound like a hypocrite, but my intuition is that as you listen into your children, some children are going to respond to the gentle grace hmm. and some are going to respond to the challenge. And some who responded one way will reach a point where they'll respond to the other way. I know for me, one of the things that my soul craved for as a child was I actually wanted pressure from my parents. My dad was gone and my mom, like, mm. she was like, do whatever you want as long as you're happy. And like, that's a beautiful gift to get from your mom. But I could feel that I didn't have anywhere around me pushing me. Interesting. And I, I ached for that. That's interesting. And now what resonates with me deeply is to push myself. And I think people who were pushed a lot as kids, they might resonate much more with this, like, especially if they pushed themselves. Like, an interesting thing for me is I've learned so many psychological tools where I've defanged my inner critic to such a profound degree that I actually don't have the, like, like thing at my back trying to eat me to make me go forth. That is the thing that kind of propels a lot of people to be great is they actually, they're running from themselves and like their inner critic is a fucking, like says things that if they heard said to anyone that they loved, they would punch that person in the face. My disposition is actually to relax. Like it might not seem this way on the outside, but like the, my inner disposition is to just not do. And then I feel like that teenager that wished that he had a parent Around. Well, it's an interesting framework of what, how were you raised and how can you almost use that, that the contrast of that to motivate yourself now. Right. That's actually, I've never done that. Like my dad was very, he, he loved what I loved. He would see I would be passionate about something. So he would help build a structure for me and like, here's how you're going to do it and do this. And he'd almost like take the magic out of it for me and make it like a very logical linear approach. And then my inner like teenager child would be like, fuck this. This isn't fun anymore. Like took all the joy out of it. And so I think- right using that framework for me now, I have to be like, hey, buddy, like this can change. Like, let's let's move fluidly. Let's just take it one step at a time. Like, let it be fun and playful is big for me. Um, that's, a, that's a good framework, yeah. The one other thing that I would add that I find interesting kind of in the spiritual space is it feels like if you really connect with Stephen Pressfield's view of resistance, it's like one of the most well-hidden forms of resistance in the spiritual space is um, your body is always right. Listen to your body. Like, don't, don't push. To push is to be a part of, you know, the sick culture, blah, blah, blah. But for me personally, like, 
I have trauma trapped in some parts of my body because of injuries in the past. The only times that I've ever been able to move that trauma was when I was in the presence of someone who made me override my body because my body was saying no. And they literally had to be like in my ear and being like, I'm holding your shoulder. I promise you it will not dislocate. Yeah. This is fear. Yeah. And I had to do the cardinal sin of the spiritual space right now, which is I had to override my body. Yeah, that's interesting. That's why it's important to have mirrors. So like, yeah. it's like you, you'd be like, hey, Max, you're, you're, you're gaslighting yourself. Like you're, you're just, you're saying you're listening to yourself when you're actually just doing fucking nothing. Like I that's the I middle way. I hope I won't ever talk to you like that. <laughs> no, but like, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. You know? it, and there, there's the middle way always, middle way. Because again, like the thing that I can feel is it's like, if I listen to my body exclusively, I wouldn't have written this book. I wouldn't go run. I wouldn't get in the ice bath, you know? And so there's definitely, it's why the intelligence of the universe saw that a man and a woman had to come together to create a child, or at least those two polarities in each of us. There's the divine mother, which is you are perfect as you are. And then there's the divine father. You can be more. I know you can, and I'll help you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Let's land the ship. That's beautiful. I'm, I feel like we, this last 20 minutes, we've opened so many threads that I'm going to take notes after this. And we're going to have, this is going to become like a series. Uh, Let's go. Some things we've cycled on that are tangible. Tell the truth. Uh, read the artist's way. <laughs> <laughs> Write the morning pages. What else is tangible that like people can take your high level trains of thought and, and is there any invitation you have for anybody yeah. listening to, to bring this to earth get a journal set a timer for 20 minutes and set the intention on writing something that's so true that it makes your cheeks flush start there and do it again tomorrow and see what happens in two weeks yeah. like I promise you you're going to start to get uncomfortable and that is exactly what it feels like to be alive. Mm. Beautiful. What What's your intention for your podcast for all your fans, including me, that are listening and you haven't been <laughs> podcasting enough? What are you going to start <laughs> podcasting for, man? So in a week, I'm traveling and I'll be gone for three weeks. But when I come back, if I can continue to keep Caitlin convinced that we should not go to Burning Man this year, then I will actually have for the first time all year more than six weeks at home. Beautiful. And the plan is come to Grams more often, record podcasts, we'll really the, make YouTube videos. The idea is to get Graham to set up my home office in a way where I can just click a button and everything's ready to go. And I can really start to um, not be a hypocrite because this book that I've written, by the time that it comes out, if I'm not creating publicly in a way that I haven't in a while, then I'm a hypocrite and yeah. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Yeah. All right. You heard it here first. If you haven't heard from God seen a month, hit him up and tell him he's being Do not hit me up. <laughs> Do not. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Keep that in, Graham. Thank you, man. That was fun. Yeah. And let's make this a fucking thing that keeps going because we have plenty to talk about. And the thing that's interesting is I can tell that most of the people who listen to my podcast, they want this more where it's me being interviewed. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to find that balance because I love to talk to people, but I also know that I don't offer a lot of 
uh, windows into what's happening for me currently. Yeah. So. I imagine too, it'd be nice to interview people when you feel super called and then not when you don't, you know? Yeah. Hell yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>